Welcome back to the Brothers Book Club podcast. We're here with a book club episode that is an analytical deep dive episode today. Joining me on the other end is podcast. Gosh, I was going to call you. I was going to say what's okay. Interloper is really negative, but there's like a <laughs> thanks. <laughs> I, I think I was going to say like intrepid something wanderer voyager. Let's call you voyager podcast voyager. Amanda is here. Thank you. I like definitely that. not an interloper. You were invited, <laughs> welcomed, and saved. Help save the pod and keep it afloat. So whatever the opposite of the interloper is, Amanda is here, and we are back with a special book club episode. Um, this is something we decided to start about a month ago when we covered Coates's "Between the World and Me," uh, which is focused on Black American experiences. We decided at that time, Amanda and I did, and Ryan did too. Um, hopefully, he's going to get in on one of these with us. I'm, I'm counting on it. But anyway, we decided, the three of us, that we should contribute a small part to the ongoing movements around Black Lives Matter, the ongoing, I don't know, just social conversations in America that are being had quite forcefully uh, during the, the summer and the spring that kind of kind of started, precipitated by some the murderings of citizens by police, and then things have rolled from there, and yada, yada, go read the news. I don't want to dismiss that or anything, but we're not here to recap the news so much as to contribute literary or at least thoughtful book discussion about the experiences of both African Americans or Black Americans, terms that are I've only recently read and learned important to differentiate now, and that's that's the kind of learning we're hoping to do, or at least I'm hoping to continue to do in my life. And so anyway, we're back with a book club, and we've chosen a novel to analyze this month. Uh, for now, the project is going to go on probably to the end of the year. I'm hopeful anyway that it will. I think we've got enough ideas to last us at least that long. And we are back this month with a novel by Colson Whitehead called The Underground Railroad. Uh, initial impressions, Amanda? Overall, what'd you think? I absolutely loved it. I It was a great read. Mm-hmm. It, was it was a lot to unpack, but really wonderfully written and just yeah, a, a pleasure. Yeah. I thought so too, definitely. And for those who are new to listening to the podcast, you've again stumbled on a book club episode. Just to quickly differentiate, we do two kinds of shows here. Book reviews, which are just recommendations. The analysis is a little lighter. We don't spoil everything. We don't give everything away, quote unquote. Uh, This is not that. This is a book club episode, which for us means everything is fair game. Her and I have both finished the novel. Obviously, we've taken notes. We have an outline here. We'll talk through some segments. But if you don't want it spoiled for you, which... To be honest, and I'm, I don't know, I feel like I'm pretty spoiler immune. Immune's too strong. I definitely don't like when things are spoiled. I just don't think it ruins it. But there are at least a couple twists or um, plot developments at the end of this that are just critical to the novel. <laughs> so yeah. we we have to talk through the whole thing. There's just no way. I This isn't the kind of episode where we're going to dance around it. So anyway... If you're really averse to having things spoiled for you, I completely get it and I understand. This might not be the episode then. Maybe go read The Underground Railroad. I think right off the top, Amanda said really nice things about it. I thought it was an excellent read too. Certainly worth your time and energy to read. So if that's all the recommendation you needed, there you go. Otherwise, (laughs) we're going to dive in uh, deep and do a full kind of textual analysis of this one. Again, the book this week, or I guess this month rather, for the book club is The Underground Railroad by... Colson Whitehead. Amanda, we like to start these book clubs with some fill in the blanks, little schoolyard prompting just to get us started. Uh, do you want to begin with yours this week? I know you've actually filled it in. I usually freestyle these. Oh, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes nice, sometimes not. <laughs> A lot braver than I am. Um, yeah. Sure. So the number one expectation I had for a slave narrative that was subverted in this work was um, just the style in general. 
So in the past, the slave narratives that I've read have really focused on uh, just one person's perspective. And it focused on um, the person's experiences with uh, like the actual, um, the, 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 the powerlessness and stuff that's associated with the slavery and less so with life after slavery. Right. Um, Yes. Yeah. And so this book, did not focus on you had one person yes but you also had other people's perspectives that you were looking through and it also focused there was only like one chapter um chapter section portion yeah section of the book that is uh dedicated to um cora's uh life in slavery the rest of it is actually uh about her escape from slavery right so so i i was expecting it to be more along the lines of like what she actually experienced as a slave rather than as a a fugitive. Right. Yeah. And I almost, now that you discuss it in those terms, I almost question, I mean, I think we have to call this a slave narrative, but I guess it's more of a fugitive narrative. Granted, those things are deeply intertwined. I mean, she wouldn't have been one without the other, et cetera. And and her life working on a plantation is depicted, you know, it's the first like what, 70 pages or so, something around that. Uh, you know, page count. Yeah. But at any rate, yeah. Now that I think back on it, it fugitive narrative almost feels like a better term. It can mm-hmm. be both. We don't have to be genre restrictive or something. Right. I agree. I think you you nailed one that I'm just going to piggyback on. This is why I don't nice. fill it out. I mean, I can just jump on yours. <laughs> why come great. up? Haven't we learned anything, people in in the world uh, these days? That why come up with an idea when you can just jump on somebody else's idea? You so know, true. what are we doing? <laughs> you mentioned though that so much of it. It, it basically ends when she is perhaps free and p- can perhaps focus on building or starting a life. Maybe even that's a little debatable. Right. So really the thing that I thought it subverted was just the, the post, the like, f- okay, what's my life going to be like now? Granted, in terms of constructing a story and making it, I don't know, I think intriguing or interesting are the wrong terms, but gripping, I think is a better way. In, t- in terms of making it gripping, the turmoil is intense and gripping. So I guess it makes sense to, by the time she finally is maybe out of the strife, like let's let the story end and you can kind of let her go her merry way and not, let's just not continue to rain trouble down on her. And so I guess that kind of makes sense in a narrative way. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I think the reason I wanted to put this question up first or this fill in the blank was that I, given the, the success of the, the film 12 Years a Slave, uh, how long ago was that? Five or six, eight years? I don't, what oh, is time sure. anyway? <laughs> but that, that came out, the, the narrative around that, that nonfiction um, had a resurgence in popularity in terms of being read. And I just feel like, and there was also that Quentin Tarantino movie, which granted in terms of tone and content could not be more different. Mm-hmm. But I, I just feel like in the culture in the last, again, broadly, I don't know, 10 years or so, there have been these resurgent moments of um, grappling with the history of slavery and dealing with the, the specifics and kind of the horror of it all. And yeah. that, again, those are films. Um, but I think this book just is in conversation with those things. And of course, other histories that go back way further than that, those. So I just figured it would be interesting to see what was different. And the other thing I would mention too is, yeah, the jumping around in point of view, you, right. you spend at least it's brief time right it's not the main focus but you spend time with some of the other people tangential characters a slave catcher character um Mm -hmm. in a really essential chapter or again section and so yeah no i'd agree though the the time spent in like where the narrative concluded i think was at least a little bit subversive yeah 
And it really just, it leaves it completely up to you to imagine her life after or maybe not life after. Um, we'll yeah. discuss that. What did you think? Did you think that she mm-hmm. she did make it and like she had a, a peaceful life afterwards? Or do you think that it's no. just constant well, hounding? No, I think it's an interesting little rule of three thing at the end, how like she sees these three people on the road. It's got like a little wise men feel to it of like here are these different folks crossing her path and i wonder what each one represents of course the, mm-hmm. the last one who actually stops and feeds her is an old perhaps freed slave himself a, a black man mm-hmm. and so uh, there's meaning in that maybe a little bit of hope but the the final line is essentially she wants to know how he isn't traumatized or like how he can move on with his life how right. his life is possibly continued and where she should possibly go from there. So I think, and I think it befits the other, God, are we really just spoiling this in the first 10 minutes? I don't want (laughs) to, because this isn't even, I want to get into some other analysis too, but I think just the way that it, the narrative drops the mother's chapter at the end, that is a, it's a certain amount of hopelessness in that. It's it's a certain amount of uh, cruelty in the construction of it, not in a way that makes it dissatisfying to read, but in quite a profound way, I thought. I thought that chapter... Um, and weirdly, the Ridgeway chapter were, were probably the two essential moments of the entire book to me, which mm-hmm. is odd to say because it's not their story. But right. those just felt like injections at these perfect moments. And the mother thing you can kind of see coming as soon as it comes up, as soon as I mean, if you're doing a meta thing and like counting the pages of how long that chapter is and then what it kind of starts to cover at the beginning of it, you just can't help but think, what is it? Yeah. What, where is what's he going to tell me about? Like he has 10 pages to do this. What is what is he going to tell me in 10 pages? Mm-hmm. And then you so you kind of if you're thinking in that way, which not that you should. But if you are thinking in those terms, it becomes kind of you get the uh, there's an ominousness about the description at any rate. So that's a really long winded answer. And we just spoiled the end of the book. So hopefully you did <laughs> our warning before. <laughs> anyway, we'll get more specific about the spoilers and things and textual elements. So, no, I think to answer your question no, I didn't leave it with a lot of hope, though. I thought it was incredibly fair-handed in that way and kind of poignant. Did you feel differently or the same? I I had mixed feelings about it because uh, I think it's pretty telling that the 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 last community that she lives in in Indiana with the uh, right. before the the terror that happened um, on that farm, they were having a debate and Lander, who is um, a poet and a speaker and has wonderful words. He makes the point that there is no like one solution and that everybody is going to have to like live with uh, their scars and to live with fear and to live with all these things. And there's no way around that. He said, but as long as we're all like, in a community, as long as we create a sense of community and we stop fighting each other and we just stop trying to shove our ideals at each other about, well, this is how we solve the problem, but instead just like help each other, that's supposed to like help them move on and kind of heal as a community. But then, which made me think when uh, in the last scene, when she's with, um, the other escaped slave who helps her. I was like, okay, so that's the positive. But then I was thinking back and the way that she gets to the North through the underground railroad, it says like it was described as anybody who had to leave from this spot would, uh, would inevitably have like the worst 
time of it getting out of there and stuff so that right. made me think like she's gonna still like, have a bunch of like stuff that she has to go through <laughs> yeah it's the most dilapidated and yeah. forgotten and so it is a it's another i guess i'd use the same word ominous it's a foreboding place to begin a journey essentially yeah. it seems destitute and it definitely does not bode well and i even think her final thought, I think the final line or two in the entire story is her just kind of internal, you know, like an internal bit of uh, characterization. I I should probably just look up the words, but it's something like she does not comprehend how he has moved on or right. she doesn't understand how he is possibly not traumatized or just bereft by his life experience. Mm -hmm. I think let me throw one of the questions at you. We can move into the question section. We do like to begin the book clubs with uh, just a series of questions back and forth to make the discussion get a little deeper, though we've we've already jumped the gun excitingly. <laughs> As a, I think there were clear and I, this actually did bother me. I, I don't want to be I never want to portray any you know, work is perfect or something mm -hmm. flawless. I thought a couple characters came off as just outright mouthpieces at times, which mm -hmm. is okay. I mean, especially when they're minor characters, right? I don't think the main characters seem that way to me at all. They've seemed, you know, in a, in a full human complexity, well portrayed, but I think like Ridgeway, for example, the things he says about America, it, it just, his, the, his function in the story seems very blatant to me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and kind of, I never want to say this, but I'm going to like impossible to misread, I suppose. Like yeah. he just explicitly says the thing he represents and acts accordingly and never deviates. And that's again, fine. I thought again, his chapter, I thought was one of the more essential and best parts of the story. I remember texting you when I read it. Right. At any rate, I just don't think he's like provides the most, um, the most interesting point for some kind of interesting uh, original analysis. What other characters then stood out to you in the story as sort of, I don't know, mouthpieces or symptoms of, of the slave trade and slavery in America. Did you think that any other person was meant to represent something as clear as he was? Because, again, I just found his so easy to read. And maybe I'm, you know, completely misreading him. Uh, no, I think that it's a valid point. I think actually, like, almost all the characters are, uh, all the side characters are meant to be a representation of some kind of, yeah. it, they're meant to be generalizations of something or someone mm -hmm. or a group. So um, yeah. I, I said that Martin, who was the one in North Carolina. Um, right. Interesting I, one. Yeah. And so, his wife. Too. Yeah. And his wife, she's, she's a whole other thing too, but she's also, I think, yeah. an, an, uh, meant to be an idea, but Martin is, um, I chose Martin specifically to talk about because I thought that he represented um, that that stuck in the middle position, those who want to act, but are too afraid to act for right. whatever reason. And so they're just stuck. And what they do is he thinks that he's being helpful to her, right? Because of his good intentions, but because of his inaction, he actually ends up getting her and, and himself and his wife, like just nearly killed and stuff. Right. So it's, the the inaction there is because of fear and because of the fear of repercussions from the society that he lives in, from those who are in the majority, from those who are the lawmakers and stuff. And so it actually causes more hurt than than anything when he gets involved. Yeah, and he certainly I think I, I agree. He's he is representative, too, of that kind of just, I don't know, mealy mouthed type of person, especially in a. I mean, this wasn't a revolutionary moment, but the act of of getting slaves to freedom was a revolutionary act because you're acting against 
explicit government interest at that point. Right. So it's like it, not everyone has the stomach for a revolution when it comes to on your doorstep. You know, right. a lot of people have the a lot of people can speak the words of the of the revolution or speak the words of the extreme act or the, you know, ideologies or what have you. But not everybody has the you know, wherewithal to go through with things and to complete the act. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, he is sort of, then again, he does fulfill, he did fulfill completely his obligation and paid for it. And was, I mean, was there ambiguity of that? I think they're killed explicitly. He and his wife. They are, yeah. And, and okay. we're not sure what's Cora, what what's going to happen to Cora until after, but yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so they both, you know, both he and his much more reluctant wife are representatives of that I think her too is a sort of, if you wanted to prop her up in the stories like a figurehead of something in terms of, you know, against slavery and it's all of its machinations and the people involved, she is the person who gets the savior complex, although just gets it very late. I mean, that's why her chapter was also kind of all of the ones that deviated from Cora, I thought were so well put, except for the grave robber one, which we can talk about. That one I don't think I understood. But anyway, all the other ones I thought were the perfect little injections of just fleshing out the the ripples of you know slavery its effects etc anyway so hers was i think also good at representing that too they kind of they they match each other in some way though her savior complex came in uh, far too late or, or really late yeah the the religious aspect i think was it was focused on the idea of the religion and oh i can save these people through the religion but i have a, a real distaste for these people but then i think she's also like did you feel like she was a lesbian in i didn't oh no i did um that's a great point actually i completely forgot about that maybe i should go pull a quote i read it as because i remember the line when they did when she finally marries martin it's sort of like when she goes to live with him she slides into an, a comfortable numbness in her life mm -hmm. and so it even with like having a child it definitely could have been i think that would be an implicit reading for sure. That would be a, a good old English style close read, I think. Yeah. I, I don't know if there's anything really clear to spell that out, but no, I could completely see that reading. It It definitely made her sound, I read it more as, oh, see, this is where I need to know my terms, man. And I don't I don't mean that flippantly. Like asexual, is that the term? I read mm -hmm. her more as indifferent, I guess would be the, she didn't really care about marrying or being with anyone. She just wanted, and then when she was, it just kind of made her, she was just comfortable having a life, I guess. So anyway, I could see it. If, if she was, I was there a, a meaning there or something? Was that impactful in your read? Yeah, well, I thought that she was uh, possibly a lesbian because um, she, the, her playmate, Jasmine, who was um, a slave. And right, right. Uh, she, they would play uh, husband and wife and they would kiss in the cellar and stuff like that. And then later right. when she kisses Cora on the head, she said that, um, uh, hold on. This is the last um, page in her chapter in Ethel's chapter. She kissed the girl on her forehead and neck in her restless slumber with two kinds of feeling mixed up in those kisses. So, oh, fantastic. Yeah. I don't remember that line at all. No, I think those two, the playmate thing I remember well, and the kissing as kids and mm -hmm. yeah, no, I think that's uh, an excellent reading then, or probably the proper one, right? That's, yeah, makes her an even creepier and stranger savior figure then. Right. Because the, I just read it more as, again, this is much more explicit in the text, but her just having these, she wanted to do good by the, you know, African, I uh, 
quote unquote, I don't know what term they use, something like savages or some some derogatory yeah, term she used the to word simplify savage, to, yeah. <laughs> to simplify the continent down, right? So yeah. it was some kind of a fe- racist term like that. But and so that was where I just read her that way simply, but no, completely. I didn't pick up on that. Here's another thing. I want to steal one of your questions to turn around on you quick. Oh, okay. Um, another thing I didn't pick up on at all, uh, which is the the changing in the voice. I I, I think mine, because I have a hardcover. Do you have a hardcover? No, I've got uh, the soft our page, and our And then that's, yeah, it makes sense. Our pages don't match, because I tried to look up these moments when you, you pulled some quotes and asked a question about why he switches the narration from kind of a third person to it seems like a first person narrator. Yeah. I didn't notice that stuff at all. Like not even one time. And if I, and if it happened, I bet it was because I've, I don't know what it is. The last couple of novels I've read Sally Rooney. I've been reading this, um, red, what is it? Red leopard, black wolf, or anyway, this like, it's this, African mythology inspired fantasy novel, but the, the last like three novels I've read have no um, quotation marks of any kind. So my brain has just been in the last couple of reads completely untrained from noticing those kinds of shifts and just kind of flowing a little bit. And so I bet when I read those, I was just interpreting it to the, or I was assigning it to the character nearest that line i suppose mm. if that makes any sense like i i didn't notice at all and then maybe it's just careless you know maybe i could have been a closer reader but did were those moments meaningful to you i it i don't know if it would have changed my reads on any of the moments or characters but i have to say i didn't notice it at all not once yeah it's i think the way that i read it um was so it's it was only from my count and and I could be wrong. Um, Mm -hmm. but I, I noticed it three times. Um, and so the first time was, uh, when she is in South Carolina and she's talking to Miss Lucy, who is the white woman who's in charge of the dormitory. And she's trying to, Miss Lucy is trying to get her to agree to the program of, um, essentially, um, getting a hysterectomy. Or yeah, right? it's right. a hysterectomy for a woman, right? Or is that that only? sounds correct? Okay, <laughs> vasectomy yeah. is for guys, and hysterectomy is for a woman. Okay, got it. Yeah, this, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, right. And I, I should have known though that, but yes, yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, and so, uh, Miss Lucy says to her, and, and none of these are in quotes or anything like that, which is why it stood out to me so much is, is obviously it's the narrator is no longer a third person omniscient. Right. But is now first person, which is why it was so jarring to me. But Miss Lucy said to her, if you can't see the difference between good upstanding people and the mentally disturbed with criminals and imbeciles, you're not the person I thought you were. And then it says, I'm not the person you thought I was just like a one line, no quotes, nothing, just, I'm not the person you thought I was. Yeah. And it's, so I think let's do the, let's do the me being annoying thing and just mentally rewrite that. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's like, okay, let's say the line read and Cora thought I'm not the person you thought I was. Mm -hmm. Does that, I don't, what does that do for you? That doesn't do anything for me though. You're not wrong. Unless it was a quite literal editorial misstep or like they just forgot to, I don't know, he was writing it and then, wrote it that way and then no one ever said anything or just missed an edit or whatever i don't know if that would change does that again does it mean anything for you does it do anything for you it does when i when i look at the other two times uh where we see that so what i was thinking is 
it's actually meant to be, especially with the last um, break in the narrative like that, uh, where he uses the word we, right? As, as okay, I think yeah. he's, he's talking about the black community uh, in general. So not just Cora, but he's talking about I, as in all people, all, sure. every yeah. person within the, the black community. I'm right. not the person you thought I was because this is a white woman talking to her and having all yeah. of her per- preconceptions like affecting her and like she's trying to push her beliefs onto Cora. So because she believes, oh, Cora is uh, one of the good ones that I can manipulate, that I can use, that I can write all this stuff. So I think the way that I read it was that each time it was it was a way to draw in the reader um, even more by saying it's not just Cora, but it's all of us that have had to deal with this. Yeah. And it's that exceptionalism language that, um, you know, we're not, a, we're not an anecdotal pod or whatever, but growing up in the Midwest, this is language I heard growing up. It was, it's that kind of exceptionalism language, you know, you speak well for being black or you, mm-hmm. you're not like the other black people or mm-hmm. however the person wanted to phrase it. Those are things I heard, um, admittedly not from my own family, but from people I knew growing up would speak in those terms. And so that, and that stuff is rife throughout the entire text. Maybe most surprisingly from her, I was going to say mentor at the end in, on the Indiana farm, mm-hmm. the man who owns it. And I'm going to forget yeah. all the names. There were quite a few names in here. I don't know why it was yeah. throwing me off. I think I also have the problem of I read like, for some reason I have, you know, so many books of reading at once, which is always a bad idea. And the names just get lost. But the the man she is living with, it's his farm. He meets her in the library. They're talking about just their situation and condition. And mm-hmm. even he says to her, I thought you were one of the smart ones mm-hmm. when she can't figure out kind of his scheme or their plan or what they should do next and how they should, what they should do with the the power they've accumulated in Indiana on this plot of land. Mm -hmm. And so even he evokes that sort of differentiator. And then when they have the debate later, the, the people on the farm, it's essentially that debate, which is some of us seem worthy and some of us don't, what should we do about that? But you know, how, how many of us can we take ahead to a new promised, uh, promised land type future? At any rate, yeah, that 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 thematically or in his motif came up a lot. I'll um, address one of your questions, the motif one. Yeah, you drew out or specifically drew out that for a book about a literal railroad, a lot of the language is also evoking mechanical things like mm-hmm. steam engines, human constructions, things made of metal. There are yeah, there are a lot of similes in here that say things like, you know it kept on being fed coal or, and I believe he even refers to slavery that way as it needed to be fed or, you know, the fires needed to be, um, yeah, fed with coal, uh, things that literally evoke trains. And I think, and maybe I'd have to really do the dig in and pluck out different instances to get into the nitty gritty. I think the metaphors there though, or the figurative language generally is, is kind of reads how it, how it appears, which is, the slavery is part of an economic machine that needs things to make it go that if you want to produce such ludicrous amounts of a thing like cotton or a product there have to be you have to sacrifice things into that to make that occur mm-hmm. otherwise when you want to when you want to make production maximized you have to exert maximum human kind of like capital into that you have to draw that out and so 
I think that that language works really well. In your question, you drew an explicit reference to Marx, Karl Marx, and theories about capitalism, labor, communism, Yeah, which it's really broad. And uh, again, on another podcast, I'd have to go crack open some old books and we could really <laughs> run through this. But in, in a very brief way, I would just say, yes, I think those ideas are explicitly here. And I think that language reinforces that notion. Mm-hmm. At some point, Ridgeway becomes the mouthpiece of this because he says, we're just putting new words on old shit, basically. Yeah. We're just calling, we're just using new systems for old problems. People don't see that. People think we have new problems here and we don't. It's the same old problem, mm-hmm. which is interesting coming from an entirely loathsome character who's explicitly meant to be disliked in the narrative. He's like the menacing villainous figure of sorts. Right. And so I, I don't know if that, you know, quote unquote narrator slash author would agree with him, but I think the, the similes and metaphors throughout do feed that reading, so to speak, mm-hmm. that it's it all feels like some large an elaborate constructed system that needs people to feed it, that needs labor to feed into it, to to be extracted from, and that it's going to chew through people whether we want to stop it or not, I suppose. And so, I don't know, again, it raises questions. And I think this idea of how do we, do we treat the American system of slavery, which was certainly, I think, in history, the most abhorrent form maybe ever achieved, with the exception of maybe like Egypt or we, you know, if you look back into some like really, um, and if you look back into antiquity, who knows? Not that we're here to debate that anyway. It's a silly question of which is the worst form of the worst thing you could do. It doesn't, it's not like it matters that much. Right. But, but I think the important thing it raises is the question of, is this a, is this, is this tantamount to a human condition about labor? And basically it's again, like which issue is the more pressing and I think just the f- fact is in America, you can't untangle them ever. And right. so the question of which is the more pressing thing isn't, not only can you not untangle them to maybe even answer that, but that maybe the follow-up would be, it doesn't really matter because you can't solve one without the other, which, mm-hmm. yeah, I know that was a long convoluted answer, but it is, I think you picked up on the right sort of motif or theme there because it's, there would be a lot to unpack if you wanted to read this text in that way. Yeah. I thought that like, once I finished the novel and I was looking back at it and I formed this question, I, I was like, man, you could really just take marks and really just rake through this, this novel and see that there's a lot of uh, similar ideals there and, and discussions there where it's like, you know, one of the, the, the things that uh, Karl Marx points out is that uh, with the economy, with capitalism being the way that it is, Uh, it creates a lower class, right? There's always going to be a hierarchy. And with that lower class, there's always going to be domination, powerlessness, feelings of of hatred and stuff like that. And so what's going to happen is that there's eventually going to be an uprising of uh, the proletariat, right? Against the, 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 the bougie people, the bourgeoisie. So the, what I, that, idea really manifests itself with um the fear in in the indiana section with uh the Mm -hmm. the valentine farm where they're afraid and also in the north carolina section right they're afraid of an uprising because by doing looking at the actual numbers there's far more um uh, of the the black americans they were and and of course, in Karl Marx's ideas of of the way that the economy runs too, in capitalism, there's far more of the proletariat than there are in those who are in power. 
So if they right, were all right. to band together and to actually like try to work together to do something about the the oppressors in that way, then of course there's going to be that fear, which means that they're going to m- put things in place to make sure that they're always in power. Yeah. And it's, it's a matter of how do you then create, in that case, you would have defined like a class consciousness essentially. And how yeah. do you create class solidarity? Mm-hmm. The same issues apply here though. Yes. Explicitly with just the slave you could call it a class or group. I don't know if he would even call it a class, though. Economically, uh, slavery is uniquely terrible, also because there's. It's not only no getting no value back; it's only ex, it's like the most, yeah. you know, horrifyingly one sided version of it that could ever exist. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, so yeah, no, completely. And there's a in this story in this novel, there are times when they wonder how do we create class consciousness or I guess group consciousness. It's it is a fascinating reading, definitely worthy of it would be worthy of that classic here's your eight page paper, what you know, yeah. get into it and <laughs> unpack. Because I think too, and, and even then, if you look at the different railroad stops that they make along the way, mm-hmm. those all have their own symbolic density to them. Yeah. You know, and they're they have their own there's the dilapidated one at the end, which is perhaps a really undercutting version of what the North and freedom might even mean, which is nothing or, or mm-hmm. no hope or something. Then there's the one that she stops at blindfolded to get out of Tennessee that is lined with nice tiles and is really updated. And that all they mention is that some wealthy person probably owns this, but they never explain what that person's motivations would be, where their money right. would come from or mm-hmm. why they would want to help run the underground railroad or fund it so well and so much better than the other stations. Right. So yeah, there. I think there's just myriad things to get into there. It's a great way to put it, or a, an, an interesting kind of angle to take on the read. It's really good. Yeah. Let me throw. A, let me throw a question your way. Then we have a couple more. I do want to get to quotes soon, but let's talk about Cora. Weirdly, in our conversation so far, she has remained on the sideline, though she is <laughs> unquestionably the main character. It is yeah. her story. I, in my own reading, for some reason, it was the interjections and the interludes from other characters that I really latched onto, though her story is fascinating and, and well told. Mm-hmm. Did you find it? Because in some sense, I wrote down my question here is kind of convoluted, but I'll try and narrow it a bit. It's for some it's in one sense really easy to understand every place she goes represents a new, like a new thing will happen. And I think even a, even a young person, a a kid, I could tell that too. It's like, okay, it's, you know, it's like a, a TV show where every episode they solve a new crime or they do a new mystery. It's the structure of it is so clear in that way. It's every, Mm -hmm. she goes to a new state. You're going to have a new insight. She's going to have a new experience dealing with either being a slave or a fugitive or, you know, both. But, can you describe her journey easily? Do you think? Do you think there's a way to summarize it with clarity? I mean, other than just to say the structural thing I just said, but did you think there was like a noteworthy way to analyze this? Some clear pattern that you can just say, "Oh, he, you know, the author was attempting X or Y." Uh, yeah, I was. So I thought of it as each location uh, for her journey is a representation of like what solutions people try to come up with in regards to uh, the the black community. Right. So you get in North Carolina, you have, Oh, we'll, we'll just like make them not even be here. We'll just kick them out. Right. That's a solution for that. In South Carolina, it's, Oh, we'll welcome them in, but we're going to use them as test subjects. 
right? They could advance our own situation by doing this, right? So that's a solution. And then you have, um, well, Tennessee, it's kind of weird. I, I couldn't really think of like what a solution would be, except like they, they just had so much shit going on for Tennessee with all the like <laughs> the plague. And, and, well, and that's, and that's <laughs> the fascinating place, right? Because I think structurally in the story or symbolically, if you want to say, or maybe even allegorically or something, Mm -hmm. that's such a fascinating interlude too, though, because it's the one place you see kind of natural wrath indifferent. You know, you see an indifferent type of hate applied by nature or God or, Mm. you know, whatever you would choose, Mm -hmm. which is fascinating too, just because obviously all the other moments in the story were it's, it was structures, it was systems, it was people explicitly tied to slave trade trying to keep the slaves and the the then African Americans in in place and enslaved or yeah. you know as near to that condition as they could in terror if not in slavery. Right. And so the Tennessee is such a strange flattening moment. Is it such a coincidence that that's where she gets freed? Well, I mean, at the time we believe to be f- finally freed. I mean, freed. she actually meets with companions who are able to like exert some kind of control. I think it's, I don't know. And then it's so, it's twisted up though. You're right. Because it's a literal scarred earth. It's just, there's nothing there. I wonder too, now that I'm thinking about it, it's the, the Tennessee is described as almost like apocalyptic where it's just the end of days, right? Like there's a plague, there's like a flood, there was a fire. There's like all this shit that just happened um, to Tennessee. And that is the place where she is um, freed from, from Ridgeway and from, you know, what we assume is like she finally escapes to her freedom. So I'm wondering now, thinking back on it, is it a progression through through time, kind of? So the first chapter, Georgia, is where we actually have like the slavery, right? The next chapter, South Carolina, which is like, yeah, there's still slavery, but there's um, uh, the idea of like eugenics, right? And right, segregation, right. North Carolina is super segregation and the idea of like creating, uh, kicking them out, right? Like the idea of uh, creating genocidal. Yeah, exactly. So, and then there's the apocalyptic one where it's actually like the end of slavery. It could be symbolic of the end of slavery. And then the next chapter, Indiana is they have a black community where they are like successful. They're able to, to feed themselves, they're able to clothe themselves. They're nobody. They're not getting harassed at the beginning. They're right, fine. Right. It's like, and and the the issue that they have there is like, how do they advance themselves politically? How do they secure themselves to make sure that like they don't have to deal with um, fighting against the white community again? It's like, so maybe it's a progression through time almost where Indiana right. ends up being kind of like symbolic of like what today's black community is, is struggling with, which is like how to really feel like a community and to agree on like a, a course of action rather than like having all these ideals that are kind of like button heads and, and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think you could read the two speakers in that final scene, mm-hmm. that final Indiana scene anyway, in some, if you want to apply them literally to current intelligent uh, kind of public figures, you certainly could do that or apply that same thing to kind of throughout history, not only um, suffrage figures or also abolitionist figures, but just black and African-American intellectuals throughout history too. I think that their ideas are, I you know, you can apply them in these kind of um, 
is it is it du- duology Dual- duality well, you can apply them to these combative figures throughout history i think you right. that's definitely a clear read before we jump into quotes i will kind of segue us in with a quote i just wanted to pull this before i forgot it it was that when we were talking about the marxism and ridgeway thing mm-hmm. what he says on two, my 221 um he is talking to her about just her own tenacity and survival and he this is the moment where and he kind of wants to i think earn a little sympathy and he's just he's sort of commiserating in a way and he basically tells her like he admires her like you know you're tough and you know i kind of like you he bought her a new dress um but anyway he says it's true though your complaint we come with also we come up with all sorts of fancy talk to hide things like in the newspapers nowadays all the smart men talking about manifest destiny like it's a new idea and then he goes on after that though to talk about how it means he says it means nothing or sorry it means taking what is yours your own property whatever you deem it to be and everyone else taking their assigned places to allow you to take it whether it's red men or africans giving up themselves giving of themselves so that we can have what's rightfully ours it's odd he he does this thing where he wants to seem like he has some kind of uh, predating wisdom about the human condition, mm-hmm. but then he just expounds on why manifest destiny is true and we need to fulfill it and it has to be the way. So it's, you know, it's this contradictory, it's a thing you see with people sometime who claim it's what Socrates in our recent book review would have loathed is somebody claiming some kind of, they've tapped a vein of ancient wisdom or human truth or some insight. Mm-hmm. And then they just expound the thing that everyone else is doing. It's not yeah. like he had some profoundly different view of human of the human condition in the end, even right. though he claimed he didn't. Anyway, I thought I would. I wanted. I was flipping pages there to try and find that. That's a good segue into the quote section. This is where we try and celebrate some syntax without rhyming more than I just did. Um, <laughs> annoyingly, I even hear it and I'm. It's terrible. Anyway. <laughs> Why don't you uh, begin with one of your selections then? Was there a quote that uh, jumped out at you, Amanda? Anything you want to begin with? So the quote uh, that I'm going to quickly read for you, it, I think, jumps off on on your point about Ridgeway's discussion of uh, Manifest Destiny, as well as uh, the discussion we were having about Karl Marx. Um, but yeah. on my page 20, um, which is at the beginning when she's um, still younger, and she's defending her plot of land um, that Ajari left to right. her mother, Mabel, who left to Cora. Um, it says, what happened between those two figures in that moment, the burly young man and the slender girl in white shift, became a matter of vantage. Regardless of perspective, what was important was the message imparted by one through posture and expression and interpreted by the other. You may get the better of me, but it will cost you. So... Uh, I pulled this quote for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first reason being that I just love that contrast, right? You've got this burly young man and then you've got a slender yeah. girl. And I also really enjoy it. And it's just a funny thing because she's she's standing there with like a hatchet, right? Like this, this right. Little, I think she's like supposed to be like 12 or 13 at the time. Uh, and this guy is like a full grown guy and she just like destroys his doghouse. Um Right, right. <laughs> Hatchets uh, help. Hatchets help. Do. Give you the upper hand. <laughs> they really do. Um, but she's not allowing this guy to bully her. <clears throat> and um, what? So aside from from that funny kind of like visual aspect, I also pulled it because I I enjoyed how it, it ties in with a theme that I found uh, through the reading, which was the idea that that per that history and that truth is all kind of 
changed according to perspective, right? There's there's yeah. the idea of like whitewashing things, right? That's definitely because of a, a, a perspective, a, a narrative that we want to tell ourselves, right? So, it, and right. truth is also based on what you are experiencing, what the person is experiencing. So I found that really interesting uh, because he actually says that it depends on what your vantage point was, but this is what you saw if you were on this side and this is what you saw if you saw on the other side. And at the end of the novel, the the final incident, the final kind of major incident, which is in the at the Indiana Valentine farm there, it's it's weird because every structurally mm-hmm. he loves to play with the characters and the time periods and kind of jumping between them as he sees fit in the story, though. It's mostly chronological, though. At crucial times, it's not. And so at the end, he in three separate paragraphs consecutively mm-hmm. just kind of jumps point of view and and sort of shows how the the tale will be retold of this horrible massacre at this um meeting ground in this farm. Yeah. And it and it's just another yeah, I think it's just another riff, another rhetorical uh, rhetorically playful the scene is horrifying, but it's rhetorically yeah. playful way of showing you how point of view will, you know, remember history quite differently. Exactly. And frankly, it's it's a good then meta commentary on his entire novel which both is very real and then extremely fictionalized. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of, you know, it's just a microcosm of the entire novel's construction. It really is. And we could even go further and analyze it. It's, it's domination versus the powerless, right? You have the bully right, yeah. and then you have this little girl in, in a slender girl in white shift. She's innocent. She's small. She's trying, this guy's trying to dominate her and take away her property, Right. And, and instead, uh, and, and he has before bullied her and she has been kind of like beaten up on by other people, uh, because she is a stray, right? She calls herself a stray. Um, but then he hesitates there, right? She, once she stands up to him and once she offers a threat, right? With her hatchet, it's that idea again of the, the proletariat, right? Those who are not currently in power getting fed up and taking action against those who are dominating them. So I thought that could tie in with the, the Marx um, ideas as well as the idea of like Ridgeway. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I think I'm going to, I was going to say, I'm going to segue from your bully comment to my bully quote about Ridgeway, the again, unquestionable antagonist villain in the story who just will not go away. Mm-hmm. Unrelenting. I was, just forgot his title, a slave, ca- a slave catcher. There we go. I was, yeah. I was thinking, what is the profession? I mean, profession. It was a profession. What is that name? Anyway, in, he gets his own chapter. Only one of them though, but it's all I needed. I, to me, I'm not going to say anything I was going to say dramatic, like it saved the novel. That's crazy to say. I was enjoying the novel fine, but it's the first time that we jump characters completely with really little to no explanation of any sort where you just sort of have to figure it out and what, mm-hmm. why it's there and who this person is. And I thought it was such a well-written and concise chapter. All of the little interludes were at any rate on page, my page 74 through 76, I pulled some quotes about him. He describes him as Ridgway, quote, Ridgway hoisted it as a lonesome burden. There was no model for the type of man he wanted to become. He couldn't turn to the anvil because there was no way to surpass his father's talent. The farmer waited on rain like an imbecile. The shopkeeper arranged row after row of necessary but dull merchandise. Craftsmen and artisans created items that were brittle rumors compared with his father's iron facts. 
if you weren't a little dirty at the end of the day, you weren't much of a man. And then this final quotes from later when he is, he is a slave catcher. It says charging through the dark branches, lashing his face stumps, sending him ass over elbow before he got up again in the chase, his blood sang and glowed, which I think is the perfect visual conclusion and calls back to his father's own influence at the metal and being mm-hmm. forged in that brutal, you know, this, this brutal earth, this very natural thing, but this also very horrific and damaging, dangerous thing mm-hmm. and sort of, being wrapped up in ideas about masculinity and even the trade, you know, being a, being a a blacksmith and sort of the ideas around, I don't know, that evokes a lot of things about weaponry, steel fighting and just violence. I think it's when people think, you know, Anvil, they don't think of making like a nice piece of equipment to help us do something better. They think of somebody hitting a sword or whatever, or maybe I just do. And I'm just projecting all the fantasy I've read in (laughs) medieval movies I've seen or what, you know, Lord of the Rings I've watched or whatever. I've got my own psychological issues wrapped up in this uh, part of the problem anyway. But I just thought he was such a, it's such a concise chapter again, but it's so it, because of the crucial role he plays throughout the story, you have to know, it's sort of a brutal origin story in a very mm-hmm. masculine, hyper-masculine way. And it it really did inject some menace into the story at a time when, not that any slave narrative needs more menace, the two brothers that she, on the plantation she was working are, you know, are awful and immoral enough and do terrible, torturous things. But it, in terms of creating kind of a menace or a cloud over the story, I thought that was a great introduction as any. Yeah. And it, it did a great job too, of kind of like uh, laying the foundation for his obsessive behavior. Right. Yeah, he it, yeah. It's all tied in with his vanity. He's not going to be a blacksmith because he knows he could never be as good as his dad. So why even try? And right. Right. It's vanity is what drives him to this. He thinks he's intelligent. He creates a whole philosophy outside of his father's because he doesn't, he doesn't want to follow that. And right. It, it definitely, if his vanity is hurt in any way, which we see also in, in other scenes, like when uh, he was talking about the abolitionists that he completely destroyed, right? That side story that he yep. told of. Yeah, with the lawyer, right? right. With um, that lawyer. It was something to do with the lawyers, yeah. The abolitionist lawyer. Um, yep. So who smiled at him and he took it as like a personal affront and then like went and like burned down his house and did unspeakable things to his wife. Like, right, it, right. That was because of his vanity, and that just sets it up. That's a great, I think, uh, backstory to help us understand why he's so obsessed with getting Mabel and Cora, and why it bothered him so much he couldn't find Mabel. Yeah, and I think too, I just want to add in the side quote: Cora reads him the entire way perfectly. I think her characterization, despite getting the majority of the book, is so much more subtle. I think mm-hmm. there's so many more spots in her character where you have to do the legwork a bit and interpret where she's at mentally. And again, it's not everywhere. There's some very clear characterization too. But one of the moments I loved was when he buys her new things and they go, he takes her out to dinner, which she'd never been out into a saloon to eat before ever. Mm -hmm. And it's weird because he had just captured her. So of course there's, you know, it's mixed messages, but the first, after like the first or second thing he says to her, the internal dialogue she has is, Oh, so this is going to be a performance. You know, she immediately Mm -hmm. reads that this is just a theatrical buffoon who just wants to shame her or like put on a show for himself and kind of just maybe, you know, flaunt in front of her or something. And she's not even 
not for even half a second, despite being showered with material things. She is at no point fooled yeah. by Ridgeway. Uh, it doesn't make him any less of a you know terror in the story. But yeah, I thought that for her, she she gets so many sentences like that, and I think that's what maybe makes the writing you know brilliant in part mm-hmm. is that it's so many of these snippets, these really concise bits that just let you back into the character or the moment or the you know plot, whatever it is enough to make it really quite engaging. So throw yeah. throw that quote in there too. Love How it. about you? Um, any other quotes jump out? I have two more. I don't know if I'm reading both, but I'd like to hear another one of yours. Yeah, um, I was going to do the one um, that kind of highlights, I think, his, his style as far as being able to describe uh, the horrors that this community has had to... Uh, endure but not in a way that makes you feel uh, like it's written gratuitously you know what i mean it's not like some some slash flick or anything like that it's written so that you understand the horrors and that you do like flinch at it but not to the point where you're like so grossed out that you don't want to like read you don't want to like essentially close your eyes to the scene. Let me, yeah, and let me jump quick, just not to jump on you. I'm sorry, yeah, but no. there, the, one of the because we do at the end, we'll do some kind of like we pull quotes from other reviews or experts or you know just other thoughts. The New York Times book review said exactly what you just said too. They said. Uh, Whitehead does here as he will do several times in the book. He opens his eyes where the rest of us would rather look away. In this, the Underground Railroad is courageous but never gratuitous, and I completely agree. It, you simply cannot write a narrative even about anything touching slavery at all, let alone literal slavery, and then have it not be at times difficult to read. That seems impossible right. or at right. least pointless. Why would you write a story that way? That right. doesn't. It doesn't serve the the institution that existed and mm-hmm. what it was. So anyway, sorry, but yeah, you, no, they agree right. with you, <laughs> you and the New York oh, times. Well, I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so the quote that I, I pulled was, um, when she is stuck in North Carolina and she's, uh, thinking back on, and she's like imagining what happened to, um, Caesar after she left. And she's like, yeah, yeah. Thinking like, Oh, sometimes she's optimistic. And other times she's like, no, there's no way. So, um, the quote is, those were the scenes she decorated in blood, blood when awake in nightmares, the exhibits were more grotesque. She strolled back and forth with, before the glass, a customer of pain. So you get a sense of, right. He mentioned that I didn't go and, and talk about the particular scenes cause it would have been a super long quote, but he does m- yeah, yeah. give us a sense of like the heartache that she's going through and the idea of the grotesqueness, the bloodiness of the things that she's seen and that she's imagining as happening and the strolling back and forth before the glass, a customer of pain. It's, I think that's such a great description of how it's like, she not only sees it, but she's feeling it. So she's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, I think that that's a great description. And it also ties in with the previous chapter, the South Carolina chapter, in that she was a museum exhibit. So yeah, and was this so in this quote, just to clarify, because mm-hmm. I know our page numbers don't match when I glance at your quote there, that is not from when she has that job. That's after when she's thinking she's like dreaming back to the job. Yeah, that's when she's in North okay. Carolina and she doesn't know what happened yeah. to Caesar. Got it. OK. Yeah. So because it, when I read that, I just assumed it was from when she held that position in the museum, which 
I think as a as both a moment of metaphor and commentary was maybe my favorite part of the whole story, actually, mm-hmm. and maybe one of the weirdly most poignant, especially as someone, maybe this is a personal thing more than like a story construction thing, but I, as someone who just loves museums, and even when I would take our you know, sixth grade class to, we went to some small North Carolina science and natural history museums, even outdoor ones that recreated Native American things, extremely problematic, probably. I hadn't really given it a thought other than the kids should probably see this and have a sense of the physical space of it. I, you know, probably should have, I don't know. I'm not even sure how I feel about it right now. Not not that this is the place for me to hash out those feelings. At any rate, I just find all of that stuff fascinating and as physical and literal as you can manifest it in front of someone, I think is really just adds, I don't such relevance, poignancy, immediacy, mm-hmm. but yeah, to see her and um, the two other women she was within a lit- trapped in a literal museum as a display. Anyway. Yeah. The whole, that whole scene, that whole chapter I thought was one of the more fascinating parts to read for sure. Yeah. That, and one of my uh, points with, with this particular quote as well was that, uh, it seems like with the narrative, some people might think that it's difficult to keep up with the narrative because you have um, different perspectives that are interjected between each section. And then the sections seem to yeah. also like have some time jumps where it's not, it's not like a well, path by path by path, but it's like, yeah, Oh, we- several days have passed. But not only that, his his favorite rhetorical thing is to put a chapter from someone you know is dead and then he gives it to you after they died, right. which is, ah, there's a lot to unpack there. I think it really worked quite well. I mean, especially the mother chapter at the end, which is just like the, it is kind of like the final closure in the entire story for me anyway. It was the a kind of a capstone moment for the whole narrative, mm-hmm. but he did it with Ethel. He did it with Caesar yep. and any other characters I'm forgetting who, who die, but then they get, but then posthumously they get a chapter about them. Am I missing someone? I don't think so. Cause yeah. Stevens Ridgeway were alive. I mean, Ajari at the right. beginning, but like it, she's kind of the beginning. Yeah, she, she dies during her chapter, right. I believe. It, yeah. You know, concludes with her having Mabel and then, but no, I just, that became, I, yeah, at any rate, with, when it happened with Ethel, I think I was the most surprised and it, you know, I, it made sense, especially since she was depicted as so cold and then it was this great way to complicate a character who you thought was just a callous, yeah. indifferent person or, or something, you know, she even, mm-hmm. At the right before that, what was the scene before we get her whole backstory? Right, she's literally giving up her husband. She tries yeah. to, <laughs> yeah, get out of the pun, get out of being killed for harboring a, a fugitive by giving up her husband. And so, mm-hmm. the other, an otherwise pretty indifferent or loathsome character. But yeah. no, I yeah, I thought it was brilliant all the way. Let me throw a quote out there um, because I just want to comment and say I'm not going to read the quote about the ending of the chapter with her mother, which is again, the second to last thing in the whole story. Mm-hmm. It, it was just an incredible moment to me. I thought it was really, it made the whole story click. Not that again, I don't think novels or any story needs an ending sublime like that to come together. I think an ending matters, but it's not, it doesn't undo work or something like that. It, right. Um, and that way I'm a game of Thrones apologist in a sense. If, if that, I don't know, puts it in a cultural context, like, Season eight did not go well of that show, but I don't think it undoes the work that already existed, as it Mm -hmm. were. Anyway, that's a random tie in. But so I'm not going to read that one. I just thought it was a tremendous ending. Um, The quote I'd rather pull hits on so many themes we've already kind of covered. The contradictions, pessimism of the situation, maybe never finding it out. It's when Cora's trapped 
in the North Carolina attic with mm-hmm. was it Mar- it was Martin and Ethel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's trapped up there for an indeterminate amount of time. And she thinks she's, she has to observe. She has a window view into these lynchings that happen every week. It becomes a, in their community, it becomes a tradition, a weekly occurrence where they would lynch people and not people, the black and African-American people. Um, and she says, what a world it is, Cora thought that makes a living person or sorry, living prison into your only haven. Was she out of bondage or in its web? How to describe the status of a runaway? Freedom was a thing that shifted as you looked at it, the way a forest is dense with trees up close, but from outside, from the empty meadow, you see its true limits. Being free had nothing to do with chains or how much space you had. On the plantation, she was not free, but she moved unrestricted on its acres, tasting the air and tracing the summer stars. The place was big in its smallness. Here, she was free of her master, but slunk around a warren so tiny she couldn't stand. So many things to in that quote that I want to shout out, but I'll just mention a couple. Mm-hmm. It again evokes that that idea of what is natural and what is created not from mankind. And it evokes, there's so many nature images here to unpack and kind of how cruel something like even air can be. Even if it's, if it's, you think you have something, but you're restricted and you're free, but you're not. There's that image. There's the sentence that if a middle schooler I was teaching wrote it, I would say this is a terrible sentence, but in the paragraph, it's perfect, which is the place was big in its smallness, which Mm -hmm. is a little, just a little tight little paradox coming off of all those other descriptions that is just a very succinct summary. And yes, it's a simple way to phrase it, but sometimes simple is best. And I think that sentence is that. And yeah, it just raises so many interesting questions of what freedom could mean to her. And I think it's a paragraph or quote like that that draws into sharper relief to me the conclusion being, if we want to simplify to a word, pessimistic. It's just yeah. you you can never get a sense of no matter what vastness is in front of you, literal freedom. She might be literally going to the West or California, some, you know indescribably open place in the end, that doesn't mean that she'll be free or that she'll be, you know, mentally free. Yeah, I think that's great. I was actually, this is one of the quotes that I was thinking about pulling, but ended up not, um, but for the same reasons. And the contrasts, the juxtapositions within this paragraph are great. And the idea that the theme there of what is freedom, can the community even be free in reality? Um, there is no solution and there, there there's always going to be opposition, especially uh, when we look at the idea of like capitalism, where there always has to be somebody who is in power and there always has to be people who are not in power. Who are those people right, that are right. not going to be in power? Those who are already oppressed, who's already oppressed. Well, so yeah. Right. Th- yeah. I think that calls to mind a lot of, great questions and and it's really insightful and written beautifully yeah yeah and it's a uniquely yeah i don't i don't want to hop back on that you you keep trying to provoke me with these capitalism points <laughs> don't you <laughs> you're trying to draw me out but <laughs> you like marks <laughs> you're trying you're trying to i can feel i'm feeling very baited right now very t- like the what's the is it ch- what's the thing you toss in the water to you know get the sharks all excited I chum guess. yeah i think it's called chum it's yeah it's like a bucket of chum you're like trying to chum me out right now and it's <laughs> it might work if you keep trying but no i think yeah it's i'll i'll pose the same question i always pose to people who have never once questioned the system they live in which is 
is it is it nice to make a system that accelerates the thing about yourself you dislike the most? Do you want to, that to be a thing? Because you can <laughs> surely we can invent another system, one that doesn't prioritize consumption and greed. Right. I, I would imagine. I have to think we as humans have a better imagination than that. Um, and it just so happens that we have a system uh, that is hyper efficient at accelerating certain things and tendencies in people that. Uh, well, can never be erased, but do it just because you can't erase something doesn't mean you have to hit the accelerate button on it either. <laughs> right. I feel like there have to be other options than, you know, either go all the way or just don't acknowledge it anyway. Right. Um, did you have any quotes before we get to the critical assistance part? Do you have any quotes you want to close out with? Again, I, I want to commend the ending structure, the, the twist with her mother, the, the, the frankly really devastating realization that she's not a she's not a hero of any kind she's a total she she not only became a coward about her freedom though in in a way comforted right she was like happy mm-hmm. to return she thought i had a taste of it but she's not the hero that cora imagined she's not the she's not free she she dies i don't know i found it to be it was beautiful because she turned around out of a kind of her own satisfaction in mm-hmm. a way so it mm-hmm. wasn't and kind of like any good writing or any novel, it's not like it was a totally pitiful scene or something, but it um, deflates Cora's entire, I don't know, motivation in a sense or her hope or something like that. Yeah, it's it's but, yeah. not only is Ridgeway Cora's nemesis in this, but her mother is right. Yeah, the her memory mom, of right. her mother. And so right. it it again goes to the the idea of like perspective and what we see in like truth right the the questionability yeah. of all of that and it it really makes i think mabel the reason that she turned back was for her daughter right she said this is enough i have to get back to her i have to right. give her right. my knowledge and to give her uh the strength that she needs so that she can be the one to escape so that she can free and and to to make a change um, yeah. so it's, she could have been a hero, uh, to Cora in a way. And I, I should totally clarify. I think you, uh, your, your description is calling out my own miswording misspeak. I, hero is the wrong term, I guess like an idol, but not mm. one you worship. It's just, she, she envied her. She's jealous and everyone on right. the plantation knows that she's the only one who made it. She's a, right. she's a hero in the broadest sense. I, that word connotates too positively because she loathes her mother for abandoning her. So it's. Right. Yeah, I think that that description I gave does not acknowledge that, which is a misread or a misspeak. But no, it, it's more of she she's envious of her freedom, of course, naturally, mm-hmm. and then is like striving to have that also. And as it turns out, you know, again, her mother in that regard was a failure that just in the strictest terms of did she make it to a free life or not? And she did not. Yeah. And so. Yeah. Anyway, it's it, it complicated. I think in a crucial way and underscores a lot of the themes we've already talked about. But it really throws into complication a lot of the the more hopeful notions that a book like this might give or might want to give a reader. And so mm-hmm. I found it. A, yeah. I, again, even though I think from the moment the chapter started and she was still on the plantation, I was like, again, it was that meta thinking of yeah. what is about to happen in ten pages or fifteen pages or whatever. I, you know, I would have assumed if there was a Mabel chapter at the end of a story like this, it would be, here's her in Canada. And this is what, you know, here's a brief connection that to Cora's, you know, that right. would be the, 
that's me as a bad writer generically coming up with this is a much more uh devastating way to end it i think uh, much better sorry and then did you have any other quotes before we shift to the no, critical parts i'm good let's let's talk about the yeah criticism. i think we've i think we've covered it well weirdly we didn't actually read as many quotes but i think our questions got into we we have certainly uh referenced the text a ton and mm-hmm. also summarized and yeah anyway i'm quite satisfied i know we didn't give exact quotes but we did uh we did our diligence we like to conclude the book club episodes with a bit of critical assistance this is where we call in some experts try and find reviews um it could be critical or academic writing which i know you pulled from Mm -hmm. i already mentioned the new york times book review which was pretty effusive and and positive about the the novel it also the novel won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and the National Book Award. So it was heralded all around critically. I think commercially it did probably pretty well. I'll just mention one thing from the New York Times, though, and I do feel vindicated because they said this too. In college, I read two of his novels. One was called Zone One, which was a zombie novel. And the other was called The Intuitionist, which I don't remember anything about, but I know it was dystopian and something with an elevator or corporate building. I don't, it's, it was very long ago. And, but my takeaway from both was that it was, had little pockets, but I did not like the writing. It was quite dense, especially zone one, which has to be maybe the most literary zombie story ever written. It is incredibly dense. This was just wildly different. And the, the times review noted that and said that one of Whitehead's kind of emerging, interesting qualities is that his novels are stylistically extremely different from one another. None of them have much in common with the others, um, uh, which is doubly interesting since his latest novel from this year, 2020 or 2019, maybe the nickel boys is also getting a ton of critical praise. Hmm. So I just want to pull that out of the times review and note that I've, cause when I was reading this, I, I texted you this also and thought this could not be more different than my memory of zone one, which again, I read in 2010 or something like that. Yeah. And so this was, I thought, way more crisp and just at times again really brutal but had such clarity to it and it didn't feel like it felt like he allowed the structure and characters to do some of that literary work instead of just bombarding you with sentences with a hundred illusions one after the other which Mm. i feel like can be that's like nervous literary writing when you feel like you have to you're trying to prove something in every sentence or or whatever and so did uh, did you want to give your quote or some critical help from the review you pulled? Yeah, sure. I pulled from a scholarly source. And he also actually, yeah, yeah. in his review of the book, uh, pointed out that, yeah, his, the style for this book uh, is very different from the previous books in that he yeah. said that the previous books relied a lot on like satire, um, whereas... Yeah, uh, that's this true. One is is not, and it's more of like he said that this book seemed more optimistic than the others that he had written. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Interesting, huh? By them, by fascinating. Him. Okay, um, yeah. But what I I chose this particular article. Uh, it was written by Tyrone Simpson in um, in the magazine or journal Kalulu, which is released mm-hmm. by Johns Hopkins University Press. Um, I I chose this particular article and I was reading it and I chose um, some stuff from it because he ties it, even though this is a historical novel, uh, a historical reimagining with obviously actual like historical events and stuff. um, He still ties it it to current events in a way that uh, uh, Simpson ties it to current events and kind of gave me a different perspective on on reading it. And he said, mm-hmm. um, and I'll just give you a really 
quick quote here. Yeah, he, it's okay. He yeah, ties it to yeah. <laughs> he ties it to other um, writers, including uh, he mentions Coates. He compares it to Coates, and I did find several passages where I was like, mm-hmm. "Oh man, this is totally Coates," or "Oh man, Coates would not like this." <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, right. Right. Um, and he also ties it to Octavia Butler, who we're going to read next time, um, mm-hmm. which I thought was interesting too. But uh, he says here. Um, the, 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 the Whitehead's novel covers similar territory as Ellison, Toni Morrison, Gail Jones, Octavia Butler, and Edward P. Jones, but he has more historical terrain to traverse. Because of this and the enchanting prose that Whitehead brings to bear on the narrative, there is no stench of stale retreading in the Underground Railroad. Rather, readers are granted a renewed mythos capacious enough to incorporate developments in U.S. racial history that reach far beyond the era of slavery. References to the Fugitive Slave Act, the vivant tableau of the hot and tot Venus, Harriet Jacobs' slave narrative, and the celebrity of Frederick Douglass are clear, but the Underground Railroad also points to the Douglass-Dubois-Garvey debates, the hospitality of northern factories to black male labor, the syphilis experiments at Tuskegee, the armed resistance of the Panthers, and the erudition and messianic magnetism of Obama. Like any epic work, uh, Tennyson and Homer appear as characters, the latter through the guise of a hauntingly eerie, I don't even know how to say this word, amanuensis. <laughs> yeah, I looked that word up. It's a, it's like a scribe. Okay, it's a person good. who well, writes something sense. for someone else. Yeah. yeah. Which, yeah, that's uh, Ridgeway's dude. Um, yeah, Homer. Yeah. Yeah. This is a tale of tribe, yet one that seems determined to rhapsodize all of the key travails and triumphs of a people. Um, so I was like, man, I didn't even like think about how it connects to like current events in that sense. So, um, when, especially when it said the messianic magnetism of Obama, I was like, oh, it was written during the time, right. Of, uh, the Obama presidency. So I was like, huh, okay. And then like, obviously the resistance of the Panthers, the Panthers being, um, a movement during, or not a movement, but a group um, during the uh, way past slavery. What uh, during yeah, the time more yeah. civil rights era? Exactly, yeah. that's the term yeah. I'm looking for. Derp. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so I was like, oh man, I didn't even think about how it transcends. Just like it, that makes it even more like it's not just uh, the the a slave narrative, but it's it's something that's still. Um, is like happening today and it makes it even more of like a worthy read for people um, who are, who are trying to connect history to uh, current events. Yeah. And I think as you were reading that description, it, it it does give a sense. I think that the author, that critic is, is wise to kind of Colson Whitehead's intellectual appetites. It's, and that's why the structure of it works so well and how every state it's like in every state he gets to reset and almost write a short story with a topic about black or african american history that he wants to comment on through his characters it does and i think it works for the most part it still feels like a cohesive and very personal intimate story but mm-hmm. i just structurally it just it, it felt so clearly playful and intellectually playful again as as I'm not trying to use that word to be flip or whatever. It's like very dire stuff, but it, I think in terms of its construction is playful and it just, there are so many ideas that you can cram in when you are venturing out in that way, every chapter and you're just sort of entertaining 
this mere these myriad ideas across the diaspora and all these different things. I I don't know if I agree that it's rhapsodic though. I mm. that I have a hard time with. I mean, it definitely picks out key travails and triumphs. Like that stuff is so well realized, and the diversity of ideas in here is is very impressive, especially for something so readable in like a tight three hundred pages. It's right. not gonna. This is not a novel that will weigh you down and mm-hmm. will you know bog you down in its reading. Um. I would, I, yeah, I don't know. I would, I would, um, kind of squabble with the rhapsodic part, but no, it's, I think it acknowledges so many important issues and ties into so many things. It's quite readable. I think it's, if you presented someone the challenge of writing a slave story, how many dozens of pages would they try and write about the, the sun beating on the back and the harsh feel of the whip and the yacht, like, and that kind of punishment based writing just doesn't, it again gets the attention it deserves in here because you need to write that way and you need mm-hmm. to show just physical horror. But there's so much intellectual work being done too, and so many ideas that you get exposed to that it's good to admire all that. And it's not, it doesn't feel mired in some kind of horror or brutalist fantasy or some kind of, you know, 12 Years a Slave, the movie got kind of criticized for that way, which is. It, the question is, how much torture do you show in right. order to get the idea across that this was a torture event and it was like a genocide for a long time? And mm-hmm. so, no, I, I think that's an excellent quote at summarizing that, too. Any other thoughts on the the connections or anything else you notice there? Um, the the last part, too, when it says this is a tale of a tribe, that idea of like the tribe of the community is something that's it's yeah. so important to the novel. And we see actually Cora's ideas of community and her idea of her being in the community and a part of the community kind of evolving yeah. over the course of the novel um, to where she there's like even at the beginning, right, it's um, on the plantation, it's almost like slave versus slave, right? Nobody can trust anybody because they're going to tattle on each other because they don't want to get hurt. So they're going to make sure that they don't get hurt and and make themselves look innocent. So it's like the idea of this and all the way to the Valentines where they're still like differing ideas, but they do consider themselves, they call themselves a family, right? Right, Um, So you see that evolution um but you there's still no solution to how they can kind of like help themselves and and keep themselves not just safe but but to make themselves uh not oppressed (laughs) yeah and it it does relate to i was in your quote or in one of mine that mentions the relevance to like ideas around people often people i commentators certain political pundits talk about black on black crime as a modern day like this is an issue we should be focusing on more etc anyway somebody at some point quoted that i think it might have been one of yours or mine Mm -hmm. but those ideas are very alive in this text because of what you said of course there's there's factionalism within their their farm community and there's factionalism back in the plantation where she was enslaved Mm -hmm. and sort of it's it's a mask to it's it's using some base human it problems that have persisted for all peoples and you just throw them, you, you're covering an issue with another issue and is a way of disguising the, the core or the other issue. You know, you're just, you're, it's just classic, I don't know, subterfuge or you're just trying to blanket one thing with another to ignore the, the core thing. Right. Um, and that d- certainly comes up here. And I remember those, yeah, there were descriptions in the beginning on that when she was on the plantation about that, about 
how, yeah, she literally fought with another person to maintain her small farm plot. Right. One, one final quote from Whitehead then. He did an interview with NPR, which I actually read. I didn't listen to. And I was just, I was reading it for quotes and to see some insights that he had. One quick literary reference for you, which I thought you'd like. He says on his own kind of structure, he says, uh, and that's a premise that not much of a story, which is his idea about it being a little railroad. So I kept thinking about it, he says, and I thought, well, what if every state our hero went through as he or she ran north was a different state of American possibility? So Georgia has one sort of take on America and North Carolina, sort of like Gulliver's Travels. The book is rebooting every time the person goes to a different state, which I know at the beginning when we were doing questions, that was my number one question, which I think that reading is just so clear and he structures it so well. Right. I think, though, of course, you can bring deeper either a psychological read or sociological, and you can kind of take it from there and and make of the journey what you will and how it comes together. But I think it was it was very enlightening to see him say that and kind of clarify his own structure. And then the Gulliver's Travels thing is fascinating because that's also a very fantastical work, mm-hmm. actually way more so or much more so than this one. Yeah. Um, actual non-real things like we could build a railroad underground we've we have subways you know it's not so it's not like this there's nothing in here that could not have literally happened nor that did literally happen he just messes with the locations the times the peoples i for example when you're reading the north carolina section right i didn't grow up in north carolina we both live here by the way i i don't know if if you're a new listener you might not know that both of us live in north (laughs) carolina but i didn't grow up here um when I was reading that cha- that chapter, that section, I didn't know if those freedom trails were real or if at some point North Carolina had its own state law about total expulsion of former slaves or black or African-Americans from the state. I That could have been all real. I mean, it, it felt... It felt a bit hyperbole like or hyperbolized, but I I don't know. I didn't do any Googling at the time. I was into the narrative and didn't, you know, I didn't want to question it or whatever, but Things like that in here were played up, but none of it felt like, oh, yes, this was this thing could never have existed. The, the railroad is, of course, the most fantastical of it all of it all. But mm-hmm. even that you read and you think, I don't you know, could it have been done? I don't Who knows? We have subways again. So anyway, just to point out that he, he was a, very much aware the structure is intentional. You know, don't think don't think us literary crazies here just because we're trying to apply a meanings. He <laughs> always good when the author and I'm glad he didn't explain it more than that. I think it's you know, he leaves it up to us to interpret to a degree. Yeah, so. I, I love that, too, because I, I like that he's compares it to Gulliver's Travels because didn't Caesar yeah. in the book? Wasn't he reading Gulliver's Travels? Oh, probably that I actually am not certain. I know that she was obsessed. The almanac thing, I thought, again, and the sort of if you look at time and the way the book plays with here, here's a here you go, undergraduates listening or whatever, the the way that the book plays with time is interesting, considering how obsessed she becomes with getting an almanac in the to predict the future, which, Mm -hmm. you know, in the most literal read is, of course, makes sense. This is someone who has no vision of her own future and is uncertain at every turn and keeps getting the world pulled from under her. So in that way, it's you know very literal, clear reading. But you could look at these moments because she has first she gets exposed to one that's really old, right. you know, a point, and then she gets one that's a little bit current. It's you know she gets it at the end of a year from Royal, her um, I guess love interest in the end. Yeah. Uh, also murdered. Yeah. So you know, there's just another joyless horror um but anyway so (laughs) she gets one from him that's sort of like current and then is it does he give her the the future ones yeah 
Okay. Yeah. So at some point she's got exposure throughout her journey to all these. And so maybe that's a bit of hopefulness in the narrative or uh, again, symbolically you could read that how you want and how it deals with ideas of time anyway. Yeah. So there's another angle. <laughs> the, the reads, I think to the book's credit, we could probably go on and on. I, I think in terms of being a text to both analyze and enjoy, it was a rare balance of both in something that I think we can praise pretty I don't know, righteously, because it's, you know, I think it, it accomplishes and satisfi- satisfies both types of reads. It was both quite well paced and the way the chapters split up, keep you engaged, keep you reading. Nothing overstays its welcome. And that's just on the basic readability description level. Yeah. And then, of course, if you want to do at least any critical thinking or applying any sort of structural analysis or any rhetorical thinking to this, it's I don't know, quite rewarding, hopefully, is the last, you know hour or so has has shown yeah before we close down and talk about our next installment in this book club kind of focusing on black writing black authors any final thoughts on the underground railroad amanda i know you said at the beginning you really loved it any final i don't know thoughts now that we've talked i uh i guess like i would just say yeah even if you you don't care to overanalyze as we do as english majors it is a a wonderful wonderful read and so readable even mm-hmm. even if yeah, you're afraid yeah. of like uh, reading things that might might make your stomach turn. He does it in a way that is not uh, is not going to gross you out, right? It it makes you upset. It shows you the horrors of of what uh, Cora yeah. had to go through, but it's not in a way that it, you're not going to be. It's not going to be like watching a horror movie with like you know blood running down the walls and stuff like that (laughs) it's right right it's well done it's very well done yeah i think and a lot of it is psychological in terms of the the true damage inflicted and all that again it doesn't shy away from anything else but i completely agree i also wanted to note quickly and i wasn't sure how this was going to go i frankly i should have talked to you about this before the pod but here's the production behind the scenes we her amanda and i her uh, you and i Mm-hmm. Did not pull any quotes that had the N word in it. It's very present. It's used as in all of the mm-hmm. ways you'd expect, usually as a form of weapon, verbal re- weaponry by the white characters. I don't know if it's deployed by any of the other characters or, or black characters. But anyway, we just didn't happen to pull a quote that had that. And I, uh, I am always one who will abbreviate the word and not pronounce it. That's personal philosophy, personal view. If you had taken a different view of it, I probably wouldn't have disagreed much and we could have read and you could have read as you felt comfortable. But at any rate, just to, I don't know, acknowledge that that's, it's certainly a part of the text. Right. I didn't want to feel like we weirdly pulled is that we didn't pull those quotes to avoid it on purpose or something. I, which feels weird to say, but I, anyway, we, I didn't want to feel like we were whitewashing what the text and the kind of realities that the text presented. Right. It was just so happened that, I mean, most of those moments and it was used again in that weaponized way. Most of it was just as quick, brutal insults, by white characters who had they were either talking about their disdain or they were just giving general thoughts i'm sure ridgeway used it to say something about how he hates the entire race or you know he despises the inferior races from africa or something like that i mean he has a few lines like that yeah i'm sure ridgeway and probably um the slave owner at the beginning um sure yeah randall randall yep so anyway that's you know that's a part of the history and it's in the text as well um Great. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it as much as I did. I thought, though I know it was a tight turnaround for us to get this book club in, I it was we really did choose quite perfectly, and I was yeah. nervous because I thought it was going to be 
I just much more dense uh, like the other books of his I'd read. But this one for a quick, you know, week and a half read or two week turnaround or something was perfectly suited to it. Excellent length. Really, I think to me, I don't want to I don't want to be too rhapsodic to use that word now about the text or whatever. <laughs> I, I didn't think it was, again, some perfect construction, but it almost felt like that perfect novel length to me. Mm-hmm. It just dense enough to get you really into something, but does not overstay at almost any point. There's almost right. no chunk or chapter or scene that I felt like was he was trying to wring something out or squeeze something out that didn't deserve it. Mm-hmm. And so. Yeah, I don't know. I thought it was excellent. Um, to follow this up then, we, and again, these book clubs, these sort of special installments focusing on black writing or African-American writing, we are going to continue these. We're aiming to do them at the beginning of every month, ideally the first. So this was the in- installment for July. Next month, it will be August. And Amanda has chosen a work. At, do you want to set it up for the listeners, Amanda? Sure. I have chosen Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, um, which is... Uh, is a sci-fi novel um, written, I think it was supposed to be yeah, in the early 2020s, right? Oh, so, goodness. Yeah, so- I can't take it, man. <laughs> Just can we fix on that? I can't take it. I don't want to read the past about the present right now. I just don't want to. But it's, it's uh, from what I've read about it is it's really like prophetic in a way of, of yeah, like she, yeah. she, and also Octavia Butler, I, I chose her in particular uh, because she's mentioned so many times in, in so many um, uh, black scholarly journals and stuff like that. And she seems to have right, been like, right. especially I wanted something that was going to be fun. Uh, so sci-fi I'm, I'm really into sci-fi right now just cause I, you know, growing up, I was only reading classics. Um, so I wanted yeah, to choose right. something that would be enjoyable for us to read. Um, and also, meaningful for the community uh the the black community because she's she was she's no longer with us but she um made so much headway i think for um a lot of black authors based on some of the the reviews that i've read and scholarly yeah, articles i've read definitely about a titanic figure and i it's weird this is a totally i can't cite anything for this this is my own perceptions based on whatever accumulated knowledge i have mm-hmm. but it's sort of there are literary titans that have written in uh, African American literary history that get the they kind of get the reputation because of just the ridiculous quality of the prose. Basically, like your Toni Morrison's, where it's right. her reputation is both crit- it's mostly critical but kind of populist. Like I feel like people get exposure to her, but if you were to just give a percentage of people who have read her, it's probably lower than you'd want it to be or think. But I think Octavia Butler, I associate her with the critical popular kind of success. Like she was a ground, she was groundbreaking, not because she was, you know, a kind of literary Titan, but mostly because her work was really popular, sold well, did really well. Not that I, I have maybe never read anything of hers. Not that I can remember. I'd have to dig back into some, old anthologies or something, but no. So I, that's my rough perception, which could be a hundred percent incorrect, but that's sort of what I associate. I associate her with basically people actually having read her and be, being very widespread where yeah. it's you, 
Yeah. So anyway, a certain amount of commercial success, I guess we'll find out. Yeah, she had, um, I think she's won like the Nebula Award and other okay, yeah, sci-fi yeah. awards like that. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and frankly, I did something there that maybe I shouldn't have and because sci-fi and fantasy are genres I love so much, but it could just be she didn't get that credit because she wrote genre fiction. I don't know. I mean, Toni Morrison didn't write mm-hmm. a lot of genre fiction, if any. So it right. could just be that old classic perception of, you can't elevate genre fiction to be anything uh, yep. deep, deeply literary. We will put it to the test. Though. I eagerly look forward to reading this. I think um, as far as we continue this series and the plan is definitely to at least finish the year out with these. I think we'll keep rotating book choices or, you know, we can always choose together. Maybe Ryan will sneak one in there on us. I'm, I'm yeah. hoping. But yeah, for now, <laughs> I think bouncing back to some Octavia Butler sounds phenomenal. And yeah, look forward to jumping to that. Thanks listeners so much for sticking with us. Hopefully, this uh, was an illuminating episode, and if you haven't read the book yet, hopefully we encourage you to do so. Even with spoiling it, trust me, it, I think it's well worthwhile. Um, yeah. And if you have read it, hopefully you enjoyed the discussion. And thanks again so much for tuning in, folks. We will see you next time. Bye.